We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 135 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 1, The Investigation. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, one of us must have missed something, and therefore we let our crew down. It was like a stomach punch for everyone in the program, and everybody, no matter what role they had or what part they had in it, I think had a sense of guilt about it. We had 15 PSI of pure oxygen in that spacecraft. And at 15 PSI of oxygen, aluminum burns. That was the flight directors, Gene Krantz, Glenn Lunny, and Chris Kraft. Even the astronauts, who did not see the charred spacecraft or smell its odor in the Florida night, were stunned by the news from the Cape that Friday evening. They were appalled to realize how much they had overlooked. They had talked about what they would do if a fire broke out while they were in space, how the flames might propagate in zero gravity, but none of them had even considered a fire on the pad. Like so many things about this disaster, it was almost beyond comprehension. In hindsight, there was enough blame to go around. Some astronauts, in anger, singled out North American, saying its engineers, yielding to schedule pressure, had taken shortcuts. And, as the investigation of the fire progressed, there were charges of mismanagement and shoddy workmanship. Nor was NASA without fault. All of this had been happening under their agency's supervision. The world reaction was similar to the U.S. reaction. President Johnson, members of Congress, and the press expressed sorrow, followed by grave concern over Apollo's future. The tragedy of Apollo 1 was widely reported in the Soviet Union. The Soviets sent condolences and letters the families of the men who had died. But the Soviet press criticized the U.S. for an overzealous attempt to send men to the moon. These are the words of Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov as he remembered Apollo 1. Quote, Although we did not know any of the men personally, we felt an affinity with them. The Apollo accident also made us analyze our systems again very carefully. Comrade Mission 
issued a direct order that every aspect of our spacecraft be reviewed to minimize the risk of fire. Extra insulation was added to exposed wiring, for instance, and television lamps, which caused too much heat, were replaced. My fellow cosmonauts discussed the Apollo 1 fire among ourselves a great deal. From a professional point of view, I viewed the deaths of three American astronauts as a sacrifice which would later save the lives of others. But I was also very angry at how stubborn the American engineers were in continuing to use a pure oxygen atmosphere in their spacecraft. I couldn't understand why they had not switched to the system we adopted after the death of Valentin Bonarenko, regenerating oxygen during a flight. The Americans must have known of the tragedy that had befallen Bondarenko in a pure oxygen environment. He had been given a big funeral, and the American intelligence services would not have been doing their job properly if they had not informed NASA about what had happened. We also followed the speculation in the American press about the possibility that their space program would be canceled. End quote. The possibility of cancellation weighed heavily on NASA Director Jim Webb, and he took immediate action. On the day after the fire, Jim Webb went up to the White House in a calculated effort to control the damage. Capitol Hill was already rumbling. Both the House and the Senate had promised hearings. There was talk of setting up an independent investigation. It was a situation ripe for demagoguery, and Webb was determined to cut it off at the pass. He found President Johnson in the bedroom of the family quarters, still in his pajamas. It was the kind of one-on-one power-brokering situation that both men were famous for, and Webb seized the moment. He told the president that people were calling for investigation. Webb said, quote, If you want me to do it, I'll tell you what I think the job is. To find out what caused this fire and the loss of life, fix it, and fly again so we can complete the Apollo mission. If you want me to do that, I'll do it. End quote. President Johnson looked at Webb for a minute, then stuck out his hand and said, Okay. They shook hands, and with that, NASA was given the franchise to investigate itself. It was a masterful piece of lawyering on Webb's part, a talent that awed friends and enemies alike. But in the end, it backfired. The decision to allow NASA to be its own prosecutor, judge, and jury raised the hackles of press and Congress alike. When Robert Siemens flew to the Cape on the night of the accident, one of the first things he did was set up a board of inquiry. The Apollo Review Board would also come to be known as the Thompson Board. 
and this group now became the formal instrument for investigation in the Apollo fire. In addition to Max Faget and astronaut Frank Borman, the board now included a fire expert from the Bureau of Mines, an Air Force Inspector General, a chemist from Cornell, and top NASA people from Langley, Washington, and the Cape. As chairman, they named Dr. Floyd Thompson, an eminent aeronautical engineer who had joined the old NACA back in the 1920s and who, for the last five years, had headed NASA's Langley Research Center. It was a distinguished group, and within hours of their appointment, they launched the most intense technological inquiry of all time. At one point, they had 5,000 people on the case. There were 10 government agencies involved, including the FBI, with everybody in the aerospace industry lending experts and facilities and a score of universities performing specialized tests. The board quickly established tight security at Complex 34, impounded documents pertaining to the accident, and collected eyewitness reports. News media representatives swarmed in to cover the story, and their unofficial investigations and semi-factual innuendos filled newsprint and airwaves throughout the following weeks. Many looked for quick answers and simple explanations. But, by February 3rd, it was obvious to NASA officials, at least, that no single cause for the accident could be isolated immediately. Siemens and Thompson created 21 technical panels to assist the review board. Anticipating public clamor for answers and reforms, if not postponement of the Apollo program, NASA officials asked leading members of Congress to hold off on a full-scale investigation until the review board finished its report. Senator Clinton P. Anderson, chairman, agreed to call the Senate Committee on Aeronautical and Space Sciences into executive session only for its early investigations. And Representative George P. Miller, chairman of the House Committee on Science and Aeronautics, said Olin Tigg's subcommittee on NASA oversight would not begin hearings until the Thompson Board had submitted its report. Many newsmen charged that the full story would never be known, since most of the board members were NASA employees. Others conjectured that Apollo might be grounded altogether. Meanwhile, the Apollo 204 Review Board went systematically about its business. The board lived at the Cape. They met twice a day throughout the investigation to review reports from the 21 technical panels they had created. Panel number three reported to Max Faget. It was to determine the precise sequence of events. Panel five, reporting to Dr. Van Dolan of the Bureau of Mines, would try to pinpoint the origin and propagation of the fire. Panel six would detail the manufacturing history of the spacecraft and everything that went into it. Panels seven, eight, and nine would examine the test procedures and review the design. 
and Panel 4, under Frank Borman, was charged with disassembling the evidence. The ship itself was still sitting on top of the launch vehicle out on Pad 34, and it still had a live four-ton escape rocket bolted to the top of the command module. The first job was to get that rocket and the rest of the pyrotechnics out of there, a delicate enterprise that took over a hundred hours, but nothing else could be moved until the investigators figured out a way to get inside the command module without touching anything. A couple of engineers on the spot came up with a six-foot square work platform that could be suspended from the couch struts. It had transparent floor panels that could be lifted out for access. Then they started taking pictures. The first of some 32,000, many with stereo cameras for 3D view. The analyst approach to handling the evidence was simple. They would take the spacecraft apart, one bolt at a time, and inspect each piece as it was removed. If there was the slightest hint that it might have been involved in some way, it was sent through a string of laboratories for microscopic analysis. And whether the part was exonerated or implicated, it would be preserved intact in case they changed their minds on down the road. Every physical act had to be approved in writing by the board. The instructions for vacuuming and preserving the debris from the astronaut couches was a document 30 pages long. If a screw needed to be removed from a control panel, the North American supervisor on the scene would write an engineering order that specified the tool to be used and the amount of force to be applied. Then it would be submitted to the board. When the board gave the green light, a photographer would record the scene. A technician would enter the spaceship with inspectors from North American and NASA looking on. The technician would remove the screw. Any variation in the amount of force required would be noted in the record. The screw would be examined by both inspectors. They would enter their observation. The photographer would take another picture. Then the screw would be sealed in a plastic bag, labeled, and sent to the secure display area in the pyrotechnics installation building. With this obsessive surgical precision working around the clock, it took three weeks just to get the command module unhooked from the launch vehicle and lowered to the ground. The day after the accident, Joe Shea had North American fly Spacecraft 14 down to the Cape so the engineers could use it as a planning tool for the disassembly process. With teams of North American engineers under Dave Levine and Bud Benner devising the sequence of operations, every move was tried out first on the sister ship, number 14. When a panel was to be removed, the investigators watched the rehearsal on Spacecraft 14 so they would know what the compartment was supposed to look like before the fire. Meanwhile, 
the fire investigators under Dr. Vandola were making significant progress until they hit a brick wall. The flame patterns showed that the fire had started below Grissom's couch near his left foot in the area of the environmental control unit. But the destruction at that point of origin was absolute. A six-inch piece of the main cable harness was simply gone. It began to dawn on everyone that they might never be able to pinpoint the exact source of ignition. When Harrison Storms heard this, he began to focus on the cockpit voice recordings. There were four separate transmissions before the final scream, a couple of indistinct one-word exclamations, a single sentence that was quite clear, we've got a fire in the cockpit, and another that was garbled. Test pilots are programmed to transmit the facts, especially in dire emergencies, and Storms was convinced that if he could understand what they were saying in those few seconds as the fire started, they would give him a clue. Over and over, he listened to the grisly tapes, and so did Levine and dozens of others. The review board turned the tapes over to Bell Laboratories for analysis, and after extensive scrutiny, the acoustic experts concluded that if you couldn't understand it with the human ear, exotic hardware wouldn't help. In the end, despite all the technological firepower, the analysts were left with speculation. The favored candidate for the source of ignition was an electrical short somewhere in the vicinity of the environmental control unit, but it was now clear that they would never know for sure. And in a profession that thrives on precision, this kind of fundamental uncertainty was like a cancer to the psyche. Anyone who saw Joe Shea in the weeks after the fire would have understood why sea captains sometimes prefer to go down with the ship. He was gaunt, sleepless, guilt-ridden. He stalked the corridors of the Cape and Houston at all hours. He so strongly identified with the dead crewman that he took to sleeping in the astronauts' quarters when he was in Florida. Harrison Storms was also taking it hard, but Storms came from the experimental airplane business and had been through this before over the years. Joe Shea, however, had come from the antiseptic discipline of systems engineering and there was nothing in his background to prepare him for this. His religion was technological perfection, a faith that inevitably betrays its followers and now he was haunted by a singular thought. If the technicians that morning had found a way to wire him into the communications loop, he might have been able to smother the fire, or he would have died with the astronauts. From time to time, he thought it might have been better that way. Back in Houston, Bob Gilruth was starting to get concerned about Shea. Like Storms, Gilruth had been around test pilots all his life, and he knew that Grissom and the boys had gone into this with their eyes open. He knew that life is an art form, 
not as science, and he could see that Shay was taking the disaster too personally. Gilruth urged him to take some time off, but Shay was possessed. He was determined to forge ahead with the program, and he was convinced that the spacecraft was fundamentally sound. Find the problem, he said, fix it, and get to the moon. But Shay was now working 80-hour weeks, skipping meals and maintaining his equilibrium with barbiturates and scotch. His normal, hard-driving style was beginning to have a slightly hysterical edge to it. He called meetings where no one knew what the subject was. In Washington, Webb and his deputy, Bob Siemens, were also starting to get nervous about Shay, but for different reasons. The hearings were coming up, and they were beginning to have serious doubts about Shay's ability to handle a congressional grilling. Webb's contacts on the Hill were warning him that the hearings could get rough, and if there was any doubt in his mind, it was about to be erased. In the days after the fire, Webb had tried to get Congress to hold off until NASA's Apollo Review Board finished its investigation. He had prevailed in the House. Tiger Teague had agreed to wait, but the Senate wouldn't hold still. Clinton Anderson, the New Mexico Democrat who headed the Senate Space Committee, was just as sympathetic to NASA as Teague was, but over the years, some of his colleagues had drifted off the reservation. Walter Mondale, a young Minnesota liberal with presidential ambitions, had joined with a Republican faction that was highly critical of the Moon program. Mondale thought the money would be spent better right here on Earth. On February 27th, with the NASA investigation about half complete, the Senate Space Committee summoned Webb and his aides for a progress report. It was the first public hearing on the accident, and room 235 in the old Senate office building was wall-to-wall with press and spectators. In their opening statement, Siemens and his deputy, George Miller, gave the senators a rundown on what they had uncovered to date and what they planned to do about it. It was the kind of snappy, state-of-the-art presentation NASA was known for, complete with slides, models, flip charts, and slow-motion fire test footage. It was late afternoon when the questioning began, and on the first round, Senator Mondale dropped a grenade. He said, quote, I have been told, and I would like to have this set straight if I am wrong, that there was a report prepared for NASA by General Phillips, completed in mid or late 1965, which very seriously criticized the operation of the Apollo program for multi-million dollar overruns and for what was regarded as very serious inadequacies in terms of quality control. Would you comment on that? Is there a Phillips report? End quote. Webb had no idea what the senator was talking about. He glanced at Siemens and Miller, and it was obvious they didn't know either. Mondale said, quote, 
Is it your testimony that there is no such unusual General Phillips report? Is that rumor unfounded? End quote. Webb tried to explain that Sam Phillips, as NASA's Apollo program director, was essentially a troubleshooter at one time or another. He had written critical reports on every contractor in the program. But Mondale persisted. He wanted a copy of this particular report. And Webb said, let us look it up. When Webb got back to NASA's headquarters, he confronted the agency's general counsel, Paul Dimbling. He told him that Mondale kept asking about a Phillips report and that he didn't know anything about it. Then, Dibbling turned to drop a grenade. He knew exactly what the senator was talking about. Dimbling had seen a copy of it himself that afternoon. It was the December 1965 memo to Miller about the Tiger Team audit of North American, and in it, Sam Phillips tore the contractor to pieces. Webb exploded. How could his own people have let this happen to him? It was obvious now that Mondale already had a copy of the report. At the very instant that Webb was denying its existence, it made Webb look like either a fool or a liar. Take your pick. Probably the only reason Mondale hadn't slammed the document down on the table right there in front of everybody was that it was classified. So Webb decided to keep it that way. He notified Mondale's office that a copy of the Phillips report had been located and that he was sending it to the Comptroller General for safe keeping. The senator could inspect it there. This little end run, slick as it was, only served to fuel Mondale's raft. Webb decided to confront Mondale in his own office and he took a couple of its aides to see if they could make peace. Pleading for understanding, Webb was practically on his knees. He reminded Mondale that they were both Democrats, and in all humility, he asked him, What have we done wrong? Why are you so down on NASA? According to one witness, Mondale leaned back in his chair and said, that he intended to ride this disaster for every nickel's worth of political mileage he could get out of it. And he told Webb he didn't care about him or the space program. Well, Webb normally was a rock in a crisis, but this time he emerged from his encounter deeply shaken. He had taken this job six years earlier against his better judgment because President Kennedy had convinced him that he owed it to his country. He had labored with all his considerable talent to put together a nationwide political-industrial coalition that had been almost impervious to congressional budget cuts. Now he was confronted with the chilling thought that it might have been for nothing. Even before the fire, his coalition had been fraying at the edges, Lyndon Johnson, whose vision had put the U.S. on the road to the moon, was distracted by other things, such as the war in Vietnam and civil rights issues. 
It was the wrong season for an Apollo disaster. Once again, Webb was reminded of the moon program's vulnerability. If the fire had happened out there in space, people would have accepted it as a price of exploration. But the astronauts had never even gotten off the ground. They had died in a test that was classified as non-hazardous. Every time somebody repeated that phrase, it sounded dumber and dumber. In the press, the tragedy was distilled to its essence. Three national heroes killed by negligence. It was clear to Webb that somebody was going to have to swing for this. He now bent his enormous abilities toward making sure that it wasn't NASA. In late March, Bob Siemens flew down to Houston in an attempt to ease Joe Shea out of harm's way. Clearly, Shea needed rest, but when Siemens proposed that he take an extended leave, Shea threatened to resign on the spot. Siemens didn't think that was such a good idea either. Shea then proposed a compromise. He agreed to be examined by a group of independent psychiatrists. But he was not going to have his mental state judged by amateurs like Siemens and Gilreath. After a flurry of phone calls, three Houston psychiatrists were located and the examination was set for that night. Unfortunately for Siemens, Joe Shea was so much smarter than most other people that he easily outdistanced his examiners. He quickly convinced them that he was one of the few sane people in the building. Siemens then tried another tactic. He lured Shea to Washington with an appointment as his deputy associate administrator for manned spaceflight. The promotion would turn out to be little more than a chance to feed the pigeons along the mall, but it got Shea out of the line of fire. George Lowe, the man who had been Shea's immediate boss in Houston, stepped down one rung and took over the program office. With their sales thus reefed, that left one other item on the checklist, deciding who was going to swing from the yardarm. And it started to look like it was going to be North American. A few days later, John McCarthy came back from the Cape with more ominous news. McCarthy was working with the design review people on Panel 9, and during the disassembly of the spacecraft, they found a wrench socket lodged in one of the cable trays. It was a metal cylinder the size of a fingertip that had been dropped by one of the checkout technicians at the Cape and somehow never accounted for. It had nothing to do with the fire, but the photographer had taken a close-up shot that made it look like an aluminum beer barrel. McCarthy said they were going to put this picture in the final report. Then, on top of all this, came word about the wiring on Spacecraft 17. This ship, scheduled for an unmanned flight that summer, had arrived at the Cape two weeks before the fire. It had been accepted by NASA and was in the process of being mated to the Saturn launch vehicle when the fire struck. The inspectors decided to pull Spacecraft 17 down and give it a second look. This time, they went over it with a vengeance, and when they started pulling the panels off and looking at the wiring underneath, they were aghast at what they found. Instead of neat, 
tightly wrapped wire bundles, they found dozens of individual wires crisscrossing alongside the harness, with some wires looped back and forth to take up the slack. Altogether, they tallied some 1,400 discrepancies, a number that sounded astronomical. But 95% of these discrepancies turned out to be in appearance only, and a quick check of the ship's history would have revealed the reason for all this untidiness. Back in 1965, when the ship was about half finished, NASA had changed its mission from a manned flight to an unmanned flight. North American had had to completely rewire all the controls to fly on automatic pilot. Another 15 miles of wire had been added to the ship, much of it in inaccessible blind spots. Cosmetics notwithstanding, everybody knew the wiring was functional. That had been established absolutely in a series of brutal tests in which the ship was baked and frozen in the vacuum of deep space while wires designed to carry 30 volts were jolted with 20 times that much. In the end, when all 1,400 discrepancies were analyzed, only two of them required an engineering fix, but that fact was ultimately lost in the whirlwind. Harrison Storms called Lee Atwood and told him what he was picking up on the grapevine. Lee was alarmed, but he wasn't sure what they were going to do about it. They couldn't very well get into a battle with their largest customer right before the hearings. Atwood talked it over with the company's general counsel, John Rosica, and they decided to wait and see. At this crucial instant, North American was hit with a blindside blow. Thomas Barron, a company warehouse inspector at the Cape, gave a statement to the press that accused his employers of gross negligence. He said that quality control on Spacecraft 12 was almost non-existent and that morale among the company employees at the Cape was abysmal. Barron's story was called into question, however, when he claimed that the astronauts had struggled to get out of the burning ship for over five minutes. That flew in the face of all the physical evidence. Ultimately, Barron's testimony was discredited. He was able to document a few paperwork irregularities, but the rest of the charges turned out to be anonymous tips and rumors he had picked up at the Titusville drugstore. But in the aftermath of the Apollo fire, Barron's charges hit the press like nitro. On March 23rd, Tiger Teague announced that the House subcommittee would dig into it immediately. The hearings would convene within two weeks. For the next 14 days, NASA printing contractors worked around the clock in guarded facilities as the final report of the Apollo Review Board went through five revisions. The finished version was over 2,300 pages long. 500 copies were rushed to Washington on the night of April 2nd, and it was released to the press at NASA headquarters on Sunday morning. The House hearings were to begin the following day, with the Senate joining the hunt on Tuesday. Storms Atwood, Dale Myers, Dave Levine, and John McCarthy were already in Washington, along with the company attorney, 
and a handful of others. They had assembled in Atwood Suite at the Hay Adams, a venerable establishment hotel across the park from the White House. They had spent the afternoon digging through the report, and they were in shock. The board found numerous examples in the wiring of poor installation and design and workmanship. The board investigations revealed many deficiencies in design and engineering, manufacture, and quality control. Deficiencies existed in command module design work and workmanship. Components of the environmental control system installed in the command module had a history of many removals and of technical difficulties. Lee Atwood was staggered. The tone of the thing and the implications and the imprecision, the inflammatory nature of it, things that you'd expect out of the National Enquirer. True, the report was hard on NASA as well. It blasted the agency for management oversights, but it left little doubt about who was the villain in the piece. Deficiencies in design and manufacture, installation and quality control existed in electrical wirings, according to the report. Levine was furious. They aren't going to pin this on us, he said. There is no reason for it. The things that are in all those pictures had nothing to do with the fire, and we shouldn't sit there and take it. The real cause of the fire, everyone knew, was the decision to flood the cockpit with 100% oxygen at 16 pounds per square inch. Under the right conditions, even metal would burn in that kind of environment. But the report buried that issue by indirection. It said, This atmosphere presents severe fire hazards if the amount and location of combustibles in the command module are not restricted and controlled. By turns, dismayed and enraged, Levine and McCarthy argued for a frontal attack, and they had plenty of ammunition. The files were bulging with memos pleading with NASA not to use pure oxygen because of the fire hazard. And then there was the matter of the hatch, which took 90 seconds to open, even under ideal conditions. If Houston had left Charlie Feltz alone in the first place, Grissom would have been able to hit a button and blow out the side of the ship. A fire on the pad was exactly the kind of unforeseeable event that Feltz had been talking about four years earlier. As Atwood went around the room asking each man for his opinion, it was clear that they had enough evidence in hand to sink NASA, and that was the problem. It was in nobody's interest to sink NASA. The attorney argued that they should keep their mouths shut and take a few lumps. The company would recover in time, and meanwhile, they would gain the undying gratitude of the NASA people who they had just covered. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.